keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. That's through the word of God. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins, things that we might do because we think we have the right, we have the power, we have, you know, the choice, so we are presumptuous. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words, this is my grandfather's favorite verse. Jake Jacobson, Alfred Jacobson. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And my mother, who knew 500 passages of Scripture and could quote them from memory at 103 years of age before she went home to be with God, used to quote that. She'd say, that was my dad's favorite Scripture. There it is again. Let the words of my mouth. Now this is bottom line, Christianity. Words of my mouth. I wonder, how many of us have a problem with what we say? The things that come out of our mouth. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the things we think about and imagine, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Who's your strength? The Lord is your strength. Who's your redeemer? The Lord is your redeemer. Who bought you back out of sin? Who bought you back out of mistakes and errors in every wrong way? Why, the Lord did it. And the Word of God tells us all about it. And so today, we've got a wonderful message from this passage of Scripture. Your, your key verse is verse number 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Bible is absolutely right, and it is like the anvil. I don't know if you've ever gone to a blacksmith's shop. Of course, nowadays we have all kinds of industrial places, modern and otherwise. But if, if you wander the back roads of our country, you can still find them here and there. You can find, the, it's like a barn because, you know, there's the, usually no cement poured for the floor. Usually it's just dirt or whatever. And in the middle of it, there is a forge. Whoosh, whoosh. And if it is a wood-burning forge, the temperature can get up over 1,000 degrees. And you can do some work on that. But if it is a coal-burning forge, the temperature can get up around 3,000 degrees. And most everything that you want to do with iron or other metals can be done somewhere between 2,000 and 3,500 degrees. And that blacksmith... You could, I mean, even if he was not, if he walked into this church today, you'd know he's a blacksmith because of his build, because he'd be a solid put together. It might be tall, might be short, might be wide, might be narrow, but he would be <clears throat> a solidly <clears throat> put together individual. And uh, he would have maybe baked or caked into his skin some of the soot and uh, some of that that goes along with that forge. Whoosh, whoosh. He just he, he would have a presence about him. You'd know he was a blacksmith. And they call him Smith or Smithy. In fact, it goes back into Bible times. It says there was no Smith in Israel. There was a period of time in which they weren't making any new swords. And so there's no Smith. And so David and Jonathan had to, with God's help, had to take some, some of the enemy's swords in order for them to be properly armed. That's true. So it goes all the way back into ancient times, into medieval times. You know, of course, 
the knights in shining armor, all of those pieces of equipment had to be properly forged. And as that metal with the tongs he holds, and maybe some leather involved there to, to keep his hands from burning, and he's got that big hammer, and he hits that molten the steel, he hits that molten iron, he hits that metal, he hits it and he forms it. And with skill, he's able to do it. Then he puts it in the tub and he cools it off and brings it out and looks at it and he hits it again. Some of you know the, uh, the story, the true story of Jim Bowie. You know, and those of you that remember the old black and white Jim Bowie, Jim Bowie, remember that? All right, some of you go back that far, okay. That, that bowie knife was forged again and again, multiple times until it would not break, it would not bend. And it was, you talk about, now that's a knife. I mean, that was what Jim Bowie used. Swords, famous swordsmen have their swords forged. And the heat and the process as as long as it takes, as much effort as it takes to get the finished product right. But every time, pound on that anvil, pound, pound. The story is told, the true story is told. A gentleman that vis visited a blacksmith shop and he saw, he saw the anvil there and he said, how many anvils had, have you had? And he said, just one. But it wears out all the hammers. And over there was a pile of hammers. And that's what the Word of God is. It breaks all the hammers. It wears out the hammers, but the anvil never wears out. The statutes of the Lord are right. Everything that man promotes that comes from his own thinking and from his own twisted ideas that disagrees with the Bible is absolutely wrong. Everything that comes from the Bible is right. Everything must be measured according to the Word of God. Try the spirits to see if they are of God. We need to lay everything alongside the Word of God. I believe the Bible from cover to cover. How about you? I believe everything I need to know in this world is found between the covers of this book. We need to get into it and read the Bible through. Man seeks to debunk the Bible just like hammers, multiple hammers used upon the anvil. But the anvil keeps on and the hammers are broken and they're in a pile over in the corner. That's man's disagreement, man's opposition to the Word of God. It never wears out. The Word of God continues on. It's settled forever in heaven. There's absolutely nothing that man can do to debunk the truth of the Word of God. I'm thanking God for worn out hammers. I'm thanking God for an anvil that remains. Amen and amen. I have in this old yellowed copy of the Sword of the Lord, a sermon by a man named T. DeWitt Talmadge. He preached on the East Coast in the 1800s. He would have been, as Dr. John R. Rice, the editor of the Sword, once said, he would have been the Jack Hiles or the Jerry Falwell or the John Rice of his day. He used to preach in such a way as to draw great crowds, thousands of people, before there ever was television or radio or any of the things that uh, distract people today. No electronics, no technology to take people away from church. People would flock to church. And the reason they would go to church is because D, uh, uh, T. DeWitt Talmadge would say, the Bible 
is right. Without a microphone, he would stand back with a sounding board above his head and he would preach to thousands without amplification and the word would carry throughout that great tabernacle. People would listen to what he had to say because what he was saying, what he was saying was the truth. The way he was presenting it was with awe and respect and with command of the Scriptures. The Scriptures had him and he had the Scriptures and those people who sat there knew that he wasn't saying something that he himself did not accept. What he was telling them was something that he himself had already believed on and already had received and already was living by. And that's what I'm telling you today. I'm not T. DeWitt Talmadge. I am not, I am not worthy of, uh, of comparison with any of those great preachers. But like him and like other preachers through the ages, I know what I know. I believe what I believe. There is no doubt in my heart and my mind. There's not room for 1% doubt. I believe that the Bible is absolutely true. And if you will place this Bible in your heart, in your life, then wherever God leads you, you'll be under His care, under His control, under His blessing. T. DeWitt Talmadge said, Old books go out of date. When they were written, they discussed questions which were being discussed. They struck at wrongs which had long ago ceased or advocated institutions which excite not our interest. Were they books of history? The facts had been gathered from the imperfect mass, better classified and more lucidly presented. Were they, were they books of poetry? They were interlocked with wild mythologies which have gone up from the face of the earth like mists at sunrise. Were they books of moral civilization will not sit at the feet of barbarism, neither do we want Sappho, Pythagoras, and Tully to teach us morals. What do the masses of people care now for the pathos of Simonides, or the sarcasm of Meander, or the gracefulness of Philemon, or the wit of Aristophanes? Even the old books we have left, with very few exceptions, have but very little effect upon our times. Books are human. They have a time to be born. They are fondled. They grow in strength. They have a middle life of usefulness. Then comes old age. They totter and they die. Many of the national libraries are now merely the repositories of dead books, cemeteries. Some of them lived uh, lives and died deaths. Uh, and some were virtuous and accomplished a glorious mission. Some went into the ashes through inquisitorial fires. Some found their funeral pyre in the sacked and plundered cities. Some were neglected and died as foundlings at the door of science. Ever and anon these, there comes into your possession an old book, its author forgotten, its usefulness done, and with leather and lips it seems to say, I wish I were dead. Monuments have been raised over poets and philanthropists. Would that some tall shaft might be erected in honor of the world's buried books. The world's authors would make pilgrimage thereto, and poetry and literature and science and religion would consecrate it with their tears. But not so with one old book. This man who spoke that way without notes, extemporaneously, can you imagine that? Spoke with those words that I just read to you, and with some challenge I read those words, if you noticed. That man stopped to say, but not so with this book. This book is different. It is not only better, it is perfect. It converts, 
It changes. It takes a rambler that can't outrun a tornado and turns a drag strip automobile that will outrun any tornado. And God will do the same thing in your life and in your relationship and in your choices and in what you do. God can do the same thing for you. Why? Number one, put it down. Because what it is, is right. Put it down. What it is, is right. There is absolute right and absolute wrong. Whatever the Bible commends and condones is right. Folks, have at it. I'm sick and tired of hearing people say, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to listen to that preacher. I don't want to live the Christian life because all the stuff I can't do. Everything we ought to do, we can do. And by the grace of God, we shall do. The Bible does not, does not condone anything that is self-destructive. The Bible does not put its stamp of approval on that which will dissipate and destroy everything good that God intended for you. But you can take this to the bank of heaven and cash it in today. The Bible will tell you what is success. It's knowing and doing the will of God. And God will enable you by His grace and for His glory to do everything that He says can be done in the Bible. I'm saying you can have a life that wins. You can be a success. You can make good. You can become the person that God always intended that you should be. God will help you to those ends because it is not God's desire for you to fail. It is God's desire for you to succeed in every good and godly and high and holy and righteous endeavor. May we set ourselves to high and nobler causes. May we determine not to dissipate our lives in things that are simply going to pass away. You say, well, I like this pastime. I like that pastime. What if you did nothing but that pastime for 24-7? What if for the rest of your life you had to do that? You say, well, then I wouldn't do it. Well, then think in terms of what's important. Godly priorities rather than what you want to do first. The thing that you enjoy doing first. No, 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 no. What are your godly priorities? God wants us to know Him. God wants us to know His will. God does not want us to be ignorant. God does not want us to fail. God does not want us to stumble. And when we do, He's provided a way for us to be redeemed. And praise the Lord for that truth. The Bible is right. That's what it is. There is absolute right. Whatever pleases the Lord ought to please us. You say, well, why is it that I have a desire to do things that don't necessarily please the Lord? It's because you have a sin nature as I have. And I understand you, sir. I understand you, ma'am. When people come for counseling, I understand where they're coming from. Why? Because we're wired the same. We came into this world, whereas by one man sin entered into this world and death uh, by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You see, Adam is the federal head of the race. And guess what he did? He willfully and deliberately chose to disobey God. And when he did that, because of that, man fell into sin and because of that, man lost his innocence. And because of that, uh, as we grow up and we know the difference between right and wrong, we're going to choose wrong. Whenever we think it is going to uh, you know, be good for us, we're going we're gonna to like it, we're going to enjoy it, this is what we want, and that's it. And there is an appetite, a desire outside of the will of God.